The man strode purposefully along the well-worn forest path, eyes and ears alert to danger, although his mind was preoccupied with what lay at the end of this path. He had been walking through the night, the clear, starry, blue-black sky and moonlight making the going easy. The man expected to reach his destination, a small coastal village, any minute now. If things went well, he could expect to negotiate all day, go back to collect trade goods, and complete some business within four or five days. It was tight, but he still hoped to make his planned rendezvous many miles farther north up the coast, where, with luck, a ship would be waiting to receive him. He was never entirely sure how to initiate an unannounced visit, especially a visit to people considered savages by most of his own people. He knew from his own trade contacts along the coast that not all of these people were the same. While all of them were undoubtedly coarse in manner, some could actually be relied upon to act honourably when conducting business. But he had never attempted to trade with this particular village, and could not be sure what sort of reception awaited him. He found himself altering his gait and posture, practicing how to project confidence without arrogance, how to seem non-threatening while still appearing as a man not to be trifled with. A distant woodpecker began to tap and drum in the clear cold morning air, and then stopped. The man held his breath momentarily, waiting for the knocking to resume, when instead he made out the faint sound of human voices in the distance. The old Wampanoag village of Patuxet. The man took the knife from his belt and placed it within easy reach in the bundle on his shoulder before continuing. Two young children playing in the long grass behind a dwelling were the first to spot him. The older one grabbed the younger by the arm and ran, shouting, into the centre of the village. Two youths, perhaps aspiring warriors, emerged from a structure nearby and placed themselves two abreast, blocking the trackway running between the village dwellings in a posture of challenge and defiance. Women ran hither and thither in a panic, gathering up and herding shrieking children toward the shoreline beyond the village, where a small boat was hauled up on the shingle beach, ready to put to water if necessary. The man lifted both hands over his head to show he was unarmed, and pushed past the two youths toward the centre of the village, where two older men, one with weapon at the ready, stood gazing steadily at his approach, betraying no sign of fear. The time had come to announce himself. Welcome in Patuxet, Englishmen. I am Somerset, Sagamore of the Abenaki. The two men looked at one another, startled, and looked back at the black-haired man standing before them. The older of them spoke. You speak English. How is this? Why do you come here amongst us? What is it you want of us? The shorter, slightly younger man beside the older man adjusted his left hand along his belt. Somerset could see him grasping the handle of a pistol tucked there. Samoset very slowly and deliberately slid the bow from his shoulder, placing it upon the ground between them. I make no fight. My people make no fight. The older man repeated it again, this time more firmly. 
What do you wish of us? Somerset cast his eyes quickly left and right, taking in the hungry and wretched state of the men peering anxiously at him and at one another, and made a rough count of their numbers. Samoset looked back at the older man, allowing himself a slight smile of feigned ingratiation. What does Samoset want? Samoset has walked far, and will thank the English for a beer. Flies landed in mobs on the middle-aged man, causing him to scrunch his sweating face, jerking his head side to side and shaking his greasy hair like a dog out of water, all while swearing oaths under his breath. He would have gladly sworn and cursed loudly at both the flies and the dour, smug and disapproving passers-by, but discretion won the day. A man being held in oaken stocks is a man somewhat indisposed. So Thomas Morton held his peace, blew and puffed the flies off his lips, and planned his revenge. Only weeks ago, scarcely thirty miles north of this bleak and mirthless village called Plymouth, Thomas had stood in a village of his own creation, smiling with a combination of self-satisfaction and paternalistic indulgence gazing out upon the May Day festivities. A gentle onshore wind had carried the smell of the coastal salt marshes onto the partially wooded hill, where the English and Wampanoag danced together under a giant maypole with fine antlers set atop, long gaily colored ribbons fluttering in the spring breeze. Three casks of beer had been placed on an inclined bench nearby, and each firkin had been tapped to the sound of cheers and whoops. They were right to celebrate. In the few short years between 1622 and 1628, the trading settlement at Passanagesset had thrived under Morton's leadership, already surpassing the neighboring colony at Plymouth. The settlers of nearby Plymouth Colony religious zealots who insisted on styling themselves as saints, called the Wampanoag devils and pagans privately, even while relying on these same devils and pagans for food and trade goods. Thomas Morton saw things differently. Since his youth, he had been a scholarly and voracious reader, fascinated in equal measure with the world of ancient Greece and the folk customs of the peasantry in his native Devon. Upon his arrival in the New World, Thomas had found himself even more mesmerized and intrigued by the customs of the people there. And where the Plymouth colonists had kept relations with the local tribes cordial but formal and distant, Thomas had pursued a different course. The Wampanoag peoples would be treated as equals and friends. English and Indian would share in everything, whether that be business, building, beaver skins, beer, or bed partners. Pasnagesset was renamed Marymount, 
and Thomas was the instrument for creating a new utopian experiment on Earth. Until his arrest for pagan idolatry, that is. The religious literalist dullards now holding him captive in Plymouth treated reading and education merely as hammers for beating the world into a shape matching what they perceived as God's will. Any knowledge not lending support to their worldview was unnecessary learning, nor would they consider that learning does enable men's minds to converse with elements of a higher nature than is to be found within the habitation of the mole. Thomas chuckled inwardly at his word smithery, but his contemplations were cut short by the clumping approach of three saints and a diminutive man bearing a scowl and a sword. The small man kicked the soles of Morton's boots. Look alert, we travel. Two of the others quickly set about removing the square wooden retaining pegs from the stocks, while the third lifted the heavy top plank holding Morton's ankles in place. Morton was hoisted roughly to his feet, legs unsteady. Will you not also unbind my hands? The military man took Morton roughly by the elbow. Come along. You'll have the freedom of four limbs once you are upon the water. Whither am I to be taken by water, I pray you? To the Isles of Shoals, where, if luck be with you, a ship might soon pass and remove you back to the lands of your worldly lord and master. For you are surely not fit to share this new Jerusalem with saints. Morton twisted his elbow free of the military man's grip as they passed the last house in the village. A man and a woman were standing in the darkened doorway there, arms crossed, faces perfectly matched in their stern looks of righteous distaste. I will walk by my own volition, Captain Standish. Saints! Ha! You believe that a slathering of honey in the form of scripture can sweeten your unsaintly and base motivations? It suits ye not to share the wealth of your new Jerusalem. You mean to make a monopoly of the trade in furs, serving your love of silver coin called mammon. But who will your riches serve, you or your god? All four ignored this taunting passing through the wooden gates and onto the grassy slope to the sea and beyond the safety of the village palisades. Five minutes later, they were hailed by two men waiting five hundred yards distant. The men had pulled a small snotter-rigged shallop onto the shore, beyond the reach of a swiftly incoming tide. Miles Standish raised and waved his sword in acknowledgement, and a few moments later Morton was being pushed and made to climb over a low gunnel into the boat, where he was made to hunker down upon the wet spare sail stowed near the bow. One sailor clambered aboard and took the rudder, while the rest of the men helped to push the boat back into the water. One final push, and the second sailor leapt aboard, making sure that Morton saw the dagger tucked into his belt before he began raising sail. A hundred yards or so offshore, Morton rose to his knees and began shouting, fists raised over his head, raining down oaths upon those still watching from shore. By faith, ye children of limbo, I will return in short order. 
damn your signs and portents, your monstrous births and fool's wisdom. Blast your slavish piety. And you, Captain Shrimp, we will meet again. Mark my words! I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Part 2. God, Mammon, and Mythology The foundational myth of Anglo-America is metaphorically and literally carved into the stone of Plymouth Rock. The Mayflower, Pilgrims, Miles Standish, The First Thanksgiving. These words... Names and events carry the weight of centuries of American self-identity. These words and names signify more than mere humans or ships, and distant events have come to represent much larger ideas. They have become hyper-loaded icons and symbols. Much in the way a crucifix tells us almost nothing concrete about the historicity of an itinerant Jewish street preacher from 2,000 years ago, the iconography of the Plymouth Colony tells us much about what we wish to believe and how we want to see ourselves, while saying almost nothing concrete about the real events or actual people involved. Generations of American schoolchildren have taken out the scissors and glue to make black construction paper hats. They have colored cardboard shoe buckles with silver crayons. They've worn feather headbands and made whooping noises. They have finger-painted turkeys, and they have repeated the condensed story taught to them. The first Thanksgiving was celebrated by our pilgrim fathers who came to America to escape tyranny and religious persecution in England. The pilgrims invited the Indians to share in their bounty in a spirit of Christian friendship. It is likely that around 1 in 100 Americans alive today can trace at least one line of their family tree directly back to a passenger on the Mayflower. Some would go so far as to put this number at 1 in 33 Americans, but this figure doesn't take the phenomenon of pedigree collapse into account. There are fancy American societies who scrutinize genealogical submissions for accuracy and allow membership in these societies to applicants who can prove descent from people who disembarked on a Massachusetts shore over 400 years ago. Aside from having an ancestor proven to have fought in the Revolutionary War on the right side, 
Being a Mayflower descendant is as close as Americans can get to a sense of belonging to royalty. While America is obviously a land of continuous waves of immigration, and usually characterized as a young nation with little deep history, being a Mayflower descendant carries a certain cachet, almost a whiff of ancient entitlement. It's like being the most American an American can be. To have ancestors who stepped off the Mayflower almost confers a feeling of owning or inheriting the virtues contained in the official American story of the pilgrims. Piety, adventurousness, courage, self-reliance, honesty. But alas, stories are just that. Stories. We selectively construct the past, preferring simplicity over nuance. We think in themes, and we think in memes. Consider this. How many Americans can name even three of the actual people at Plymouth? Going a step further, how many Americans could name any of the indigenous individuals, tribes, and nations who made the first Thanksgiving possible? The Pilgrim story is a cipher, and it is symbolism. It is iconography meant to represent who is American and what Americans stand for. The story is not intended to make us think about real people or real events. The Pilgrim story was never about history. If it was, everyone would know that the majority of those who stepped off the Mayflower and the majority of those celebrating the first Thanksgiving were not religious pilgrims at all. The Mayflower carried around 102 passengers, not counting her 30 or 40 crew members. Only 37 of the 102 Mayflower passengers were actual members of a religious congregation known at the time as Brownists. They did not even call themselves pilgrims, by the way. That was a later styling by others. These Brownists were named after an Anglican clergyman called, that's right, Robert Brown. If you've never heard of Robert Brown, you're not alone. To understand Brown and his connection to the Mayflower, we will need to backtrack a few years before the establishment of Plymouth Colony. In the simplest possible terms, Henry VIII of England had removed the English Catholic Church from Roman papal authority during the mid-1500s and formed a new Anglican or English church with old Henry as the new head of church. Why he did this is complicated and does not concern us here. What does concern us is that many Protestant Englishmen who had welcomed the end of the Catholic Church, believing it to be evil and corrupt, were absolutely horrified to discover that Henry and his successors, Elizabeth, James and Charles, wished to retain many of the old Catholic forms of worship with a clear church hierarchy still in place. In other words, the English monarchy were not actually Protestant in the contemporary sense of the word. Henry was thinking more along the lines of, I'll be the new Pope, with all clergy and their flocks ultimately answerable to the monarch. Some of the more disgruntled religious radicals attempted to change this new Anglican church from within to purify it of all traces of Roman Catholicism. 
But over time, even these purifying Puritans were seen as too moderate by certain religious thinkers, and the extra, extra religious radicals, like Robert Brown, attempted to break away from the Anglican Church altogether. Breakaway church congregations were known at the time by the names of their leaders, and later more commonly as dissenters or separatists. Being the head of a unified state church allows a great deal of social control, and church tithes are a fine source of regular income. Needless to say, monarchs did not like losing either of those things. So dissenters and separatists were ceaselessly harassed by the establishment. The separatist clergyman Robert Brown eventually rode back from his own earlier radicalism, but his mantle was taken up by other religious leaders during the late 1500s and early 1600s. This led to years of secrecy, subterfuge, book smuggling, imprisonment, executions, and even a failed attempt to form a separatist religious colony in the chill and mist of Newfoundland, long before Plymouth. Eventually, in the early 1600s, a couple of the most fervent groups of Brownist separatists from Nottingham in the north of England upped sticks and moved to Amsterdam in the Netherlands, a place at the time of relative religious tolerance. Once there, they met up with other separatists from the failed Newfoundland expedition and elsewhere before quickly managing to quarrel themselves into various splinter groups. One such church congregation led by Francis Johnson eventually left for the new Virginia colony in America. Others formed Baptist churches or even joined the Mennonite religious sect. One faction led by John Robinson left bustling Amsterdam for the small quiet town of Leiden, also in the Netherlands. It was this latter faction who, after a few years working at menial jobs in Leiden, began to worry that their children were growing up too Dutch, losing their English identity, and even worse, losing their strict religious focus. Imagine rural Pennsylvanian Amish or strict Utah Mormons being forced to live and raise children for a decade in the heart of New Orleans or Rio de Janeiro, and you begin to sense the situation. And so the English church in Leiden was split again, with about half of its congregation deciding to follow other separatists to Virginia, where they could dream of building a new Jerusalem on the edge of a wilderness, far away from worldly temptations. Such an undertaking, basically chartering enough ships to carry supplies for a well-provisioned and self-contained village over 3,000 miles overseas, was well beyond their financial means. So the congregation was forced, reluctantly, to search for a financial partner. Enter the London Merchant Adventurers Company, who would supply money while recruiting additional expedition members, including ship's crew, craftsmen, military personnel, and people already familiar with conditions in Virginia. Remember that the word adventurer in the early 1600s did not mean what it does today. Venture capitalist or speculator would be reasonable approximations of the meaning. It is also worth noting that around 19 of the 102 passengers were actually bonded servants, essentially a bunch of kids who were contracted or indentured to members of both the Leiden church congregation 
and members of the London Merchant Adventurers. In late summer of 1620, members of this expedition were divided between two ships, the Mayflower and the Speedwell, and they set sail from Southampton on the southern coast of England. The Speedwell began taking on water when barely out of sight of land. The mini flotilla limped back into the nearest English port at Plymouth in Devon, where most of the Speedwell passengers eventually decided to board the Mayflower and give it another try. This overcrowded little ship finally set sail again in September, dangerously late in the year for a North Atlantic crossing. And so it was that the 37 extremely religious people calling themselves saints found themselves aboard one cramped little leaky ship bound for the new world, surrounded by people they referred to as strangers. This distinction was of huge importance to the brownness of Leiden, much in the same way that devout Amish might call all non-Amish people the English or Jewish people might refer to non-Jews as Gentiles. These saints on board the Mayflower quite literally saw themselves as a people apart, selected by God himself to be his instruments in his great preordained plan for the world. Earlier, we mentioned that the pilgrim story is iconography, not real history. But even real history is a discipline, not a science. Histories are never constructed from all of the available information. Historians tend to offer interpretations of events based on a selection of evidence. And the selection or omission of evidence is rarely neutral. Say, the Mayflower and where some see righteous victims of religious persecution, others might see zealots or cult members. Say the Mayflower, and where some see victims of an overweening and immoral monarchy, others might see a sovereign state simply attempting to remain cohesive during difficult times of war and societal fragmentation and new religious extremism. Say the Mayflower, and where some see daring explorers searching for a world of freedom and opportunity, others might see a ragtag band of chancers, misfits, violent thugs, child victims, and greedy businessmen. Perhaps the correct viewpoint lies somewhere in the middle, or somewhere else altogether. But this much is true. Whichever way we look at it, a large part of modern American identity is based in what Americans choose to remember about 1620, when the crew of the Mayflower made a navigational error 
and was forced to make landfall far to the north of their intended destination in Virginia. This is where traditional histories pick up the ball and run, choosing to remember only the story of religious pilgrim fathers. As regular listeners will already know, this is not a traditional history podcast. Let's go and meet some of those people the saints called strangers. For decades, the teaching of primary and secondary school history in the USA was based on a strange obsession with the memorization of historical dates, much in the same way English teachers were obsessed with spelling and grammar. These approaches to learning, while important and useful in the right place, can also stand in the way of a more holistic or broader way of learning and understanding. Under the date memorization system, we learned that Jamestown was founded in 1607. We are taught that pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. This landmark date way of learning obscures the vast and continuous river of cause and effect, often leaving us with a false sense of clear beginnings and absolute endings. 1620 is a prime example of this, encouraging a general belief that the pilgrims were the first English or European people to set foot in the places now known as Canada and New England. This belief is wrong. If we set aside the short-lived Norse settlement of Newfoundland during the 10th and 11th centuries, we find that only six years after Columbus first made landfall in the Caribbean in 1492, an Italian sailing under the flag of Henry VII of England named Giovanni Cabato, also known as John Cabot, had explored the Massachusetts coast as early as 1498. And for many decades before the Mayflower eventually dropped anchor, the Grand Banks off Newfoundland had been fished for cod by small European fleets operating out of Portugal, Spain, Brittany, the Basque country, France and England with the Basque boats also specialising in whaling and the French also deeply involved in the fur trade with indigenous North American peoples such as the Mi'kmaq. This multinational gang of fishermen brought their catches ashore all along the coast from Newfoundland to Massachusetts Bay to be salted, dried and packed in barrels for the long voyage back to European ports. While many fishermen lived and slept aboard their ships, only coming ashore to process their daily catch. Others set up seasonal camps or mini-villages, trading and interacting with local people. Note here that interacting went far beyond trade. Sailors and fishermen through the ages have never been noted for celibacy. One eyewitness from 1578 counted no less than 320 European vessels along the Newfoundland coast, over four decades before events at Plymouth Rock. Almost 
every indigenous tribe for hundreds of miles along the northeast coast of North America would have had contact in varying degrees with Europeans for over a full century before the arrival of the Mayflower. Even Captain John Smith of Pocahontas and Jamestown fame had already visited this section of Massachusetts years before the Mayflower. Strangers like Thomas Weston from the London Merchant Adventures Company were not just explorers tagging along with the religious congregation aboard the Mayflower. A ruthless businessman, Weston would have been well aware of the increasing European presence in North America and eager to get in on the action. Speculator businessmen like Weston were using the saints just as much as the saints were using the strangers. Economic success for the London Merchant Adventures Company and the actual survival of its agents in North America would depend upon businessmen strangers working together with leaders of the religious community. But the navigational failure which had carried the Mayflower 200 miles off course to Cape Cod had caused a new tension among the different groups aboard the ship. The saints were the ones actually holding the piece of paper with the king's permission to create and build a settlement. James I and VI, that's one person, he's the first of Scotland and the sixth of England, was trying to kill multiple birds with one stone by encouraging private investors to finance colonies in North America. This saved his royal treasury money, and if some colonists and investors were drawn from the more troublesome religious groups in Scotland and England, all the better. But once in Massachusetts, the large contingent of Mayflower strangers quite correctly pointed out that the Saints Charter was only valid in the existing colony of Virginia. Because Massachusetts lay beyond the presumed northern reach of Virginia colony, many strangers aboard the Mayflower now felt disinclined to accept leadership from, let alone accept every decision made by, the smaller contingent of saints. This is why the two factions felt compelled to draw up a contract of mutual cooperation for governing the new colony. The famous Mayflower Compact, often pointed to as a foundational document in the development of American democracy, was really little more than an agreed truce between competing interests. This forced symbiotic relationship would be cemented over the winter of 1620 to 1621, as saints and strangers alike lay cold, wet, sick, starving and dying aboard the Mayflower as she lay anchored off Cape Cod. Before spring arrived, at least 45 bodies would be surreptitiously brought ashore for burial on a nearby hill. No need to let the local Indians realize how reduced in numbers the prospective settlers now were. Compacts and contracts for cooperative governance aside, there can be no doubting two things. Number one, the separatist saints wanted to establish something akin to a Protestant theocracy in the New World. Point two, the strangers would regularly kick back hard against this idea. Thomas Weston, for his part, the primary mover behind the London Merchant Adventures, was certainly not interested in remaining in Plymouth under saintly theocratic rule. He sailed out of Cape Cod as soon as weather and sea conditions allowed, 
and set about gathering a fresh complement of men from England for attempting a new settlement a couple of dozen miles north of Plymouth. Always happy to squeeze the brownest for money, Weston had offered to procure a cannon for the Plymouth colonists while back in England. With brownest money, a suitable armament was soon procured, but when Weston later crossed paths with a Turkish pirate vessel, whose captain expressed an interest in purchasing this valuable piece of ordnance, the pirate's offer was more generous than that of the saints. Weston, always about the money, could not resist, and was only too happy to part with the piece and pocket the proceeds. Any average person might be wondering how a man traveling between Massachusetts and England managed to bump into a Turkish pirate. You see, in 1620, England, with a population of only around 4 million, was only a very minor player on the world stage compared to the Ottoman or Turkish Empire with its 23 million strong population. Modern English children, heirs to what would eventually become the mighty British Empire, are often unaware of earlier Britannia's inability to rule the waves. Pirates from the Barbary Coast states of North Africa regularly raided the coastal towns of Great Britain and Ireland, taking booty and carrying away slaves. Dutch Moroccan Muslim pirate Mirat Reis the Younger even managed to occupy the Isle of Lundy in England's Bristol Channel during the 1620s and 1630s, flying the flag of the Ottoman Empire in England while Englishmen were trying to plant flags in America. Most Americans today are likewise not even remotely aware that ships from the mighty Ottoman Navy could be seen off the coasts of Newfoundland and Virginia during the early 1600s. But that's all a story for another day. Before we stray too far off course, suffice to say that Thomas Weston avoided future contact with the Plymouth colonists. Of course, most strangers in Plymouth lacked the financial means and social connections available to Thomas Weston. So as the colony began to find itself on firmer footing, many strangers who were not at the very bottom of the social ladder began to cast about for ways to not merely survive, but to thrive at Plymouth. Thriving for a stranger in Plymouth colony was possible in only a few ways. One might be a professional soldier, a skilled hunter or trapper, a valued craftsman, a fisherman, a sailor or ship's pilot, a trader or merchant, or at least be allotted a piece of land to farm. During the earliest years of Plymouth Colony, many strangers attempted to make a living through any means other than farming. Even with pre-cleared land easily available, subsistence farming was a back-breaking way to survive. Career soldier mercenary Miles Standish was first among these non-farming strangers, a man who, while undoubtedly effective in military matters, seems to have strutted around like a nightclub bouncer looking for a fight to justify his paycheck. Standish's eagerness to find trouble before it found him would culminate in the ugly episode at Thomas Weston's Weymouth Colony, just north of Plymouth in 1623, where Standish and his men poisoned, attacked, stabbed and hanged local leaders who had gathered ostensibly for peace talks. The severed head of one victim, Widuwamit, was carried back for display on a pike in Plymouth. The actions of Standish would later be ennobled in the poetry of Longfellow, minus the Heart of Darkness Apocalypse Now style details. 
Other Mayflower strangers included the Moore children, in a story surely worthy of study in any university course dealing with early modern patriarchy. Samuel Moore, a member of a prominent and wealthy family from Shropshire in England, had been party to an arranged marriage with his cousin Catherine Moore, a thing not at all uncommon at the time as a means of increasing and protecting property wealth. Catherine, of course, had little say in the matter. Over the following few years, with Samuel Moore working far from home, Catherine would give birth to four children, who Samuel Moore eventually suspected as being the result of her regular liaisons with a neighbour, an earlier sweetheart and fiancé named Jacob Blakeway. Samuel Moore might have simply divorced his wife and banished her and the illegitimate children from his house and holdings. But no. It might seem extraordinary to us today, but Samuel Moore managed, through the English court system, to gain sole custody of the very children he claimed were bastards unrelated to himself. And why would he do such a thing? Money, pride and revenge, it would seem. After gaining custody, he connived with his acquaintance Thomas Weston, yes, the London merchant adventurer guy, to have the four children aged four to eight separated from one another and placed in bonded servitude to various saints headed for America. Of these four innocent children, Ellen, Mary, Richard and Jasper, only Richard survived the first winter on Cape Cod. There is no room here for a lengthy nature versus nurture argument, but despite his upbringing among saints, Richard Moore grew up to walk the path of a stranger, becoming an extremely well-traveled sea captain with wives on both sides of the Atlantic, and a reputation for dalliances with married women, not unlike his putative father. We know this because his behavior was noted in the records of Salem Church, just four years before the notorious witch trials began there. When not at sea, Captain Richard Moore kept an alehouse in Salem, which is about 60 miles north of Plymouth. He seems to have been well acquainted with Salem men like John Proctor and Giles Corey, who sometimes drank there. Richard Moore of the Mayflower would live long enough to see Proctor hanged and Corey tortured to death over three days by having a number of heavy stones placed at intervals upon his chest. Both had been tried for witchcraft. Torture such as pressing by stones was used to force confessions from accused witches. The reason for such brutality, and the reason for Giles Corey's refusal to confess, becomes clear when we learn that under English common law at the time, the family of confessed witches lost all inheritance rights to the witches' land and property. If this system sounds like an open invitation for false accusations to be flung between quarrelsome and jealous neighbours, you are a cynic after my own heart. Approaches to land ownership, land usage and land management varied all over England at the time and were thus confusing and often in direct conflict as medieval England entered the early modern era. The old world English obsession with borders, boundaries, fences, fields, gates, rights of way and commonage was being carried to the new world among saints and strangers alike. Add to this the often competing interests of God and Mammon in Plymouth Colony between saints and strangers, and we find ground ripe for discord. 
The stranger Richard Moore's life seems oddly bookended by the evil that people do and the lies which people tell, all in the pursuit of property and worldly rewards, from Shropshire to Salem via Plymouth. The get-off-my-property of American lore has deep roots indeed. Strangers who were less obsessed with property and by extension less integrated in the daily life of the saints, were the ones most likely to turn their hand to hunting, trapping, fishing and trading, and they were the ones most likely to be in closer contact with indigenous peoples. From the outset, this trade and its methods of conduct were often at odds with the religious ideology and business aims of the saints, but for the most part, the saints held their noses and put up with this less than saintly situation. Still, saints did attempt to curtail and circumscribe the use of alcohol, forbidding outright the sale of intoxicating liquors to the local Indians, but to no avail. Tavern and innkeeping were early and lucrative business opportunities for strangers, with Stephen Hopkins, formerly of Bermuda and Jamestown, preferring drinking, gaming and gambling to sitting at home with a Bible. It was probably Hopkins' conviviality and ability to understand a bit of the local Algonquian tongue from his time at Jamestown, which led to the saints choosing to lodge Samoset in Hopkins' house during the Sagamore's trade visits to Plymouth. Other liquor importers and future innkeepers soon arrived with the ships which began travelling regularly between Massachusetts, the Caribbean and England, with names like Sturgis and Barker soon prominent. Robert Barker, who had arrived in Plymouth eight years after the Mayflower as a 12-year-old, later ran an inn while operating a nearby ferry, and we find his wife Luciana being charged by the saintly authorities for illegally selling cider to local Indians. Also formally outlawed was the sale of firearms to the Indians, and again, the strangers took little notice of such legal prescriptions. While the saints were riven with anxiety at the idea of savages possessing firearms, the people who traded with various tribes on a daily basis were more sanguine. After all, why would the Wampanoag attack the very gun dealers who made it possible for the Wampanoag to withstand the Narragansett and other enemy tribes to their west? And besides, as we have seen with Thomas Weston, no one ever became poor selling weapons, right? Other strangers appear to have embodied the literal meaning of the word stranger. No family history seems to exist for Richard Warren, merchant, who appears out of nowhere for his marriage to Elizabeth Walker in Hertfordshire, England. After travelling aboard the Mayflower shortly thereafter, Warren felt confident enough to proclaim publicly among saints that he neither feared God nor the devil, and seems to have paid no social price for saying so. George Sewell's origins in the Netherlands are equally murky. We'll return to Mr. Warren, Mr. Sewell and others slightly later. Even if ownership of land was still seen as a holy grail to most Englishmen, those hoping to make a living from farming, saint or stranger, were faced with both advantages and limitations in colonial Massachusetts. Those of the boomer generation and earlier were schooled in the belief that the Pilgrim Fathers faced bravely into an intimidating forest wilderness and that they, and generations of pioneers after them, 
tamed the American wilderness with little more than a strong back and a sharp axe, and maybe the occasional help of some friendly and welcoming Indians. While the land around Plymouth Colony in 1621 was obviously much wilder than anything seen there today, it was far from an untouched wilderness. Strangers hoping to become farmers found a land which had been cleared, settled, farmed, and built upon by generations of Pocasset, Patuxet, Poconocet, and other peoples who were part of a loose confederation of local tribes speaking Algonquian languages, usually referred to collectively as the Wampanoag people. As already noted, a century of increasing contact with Europeans had reached a crescendo in the two decades before the arrival of the Mayflower. In 1614, Captain John Smith had sailed with two ships northwards up the American coast from the new English colony at Jamestown, stopping in the places now called Maine and Massachusetts to trade for furs with local Indians and for organizing a cargo of dried cod to be purchased from European fishermen there. Smith pressed on for England, leaving a thuggish man named Thomas Hunt in charge of the second ship with instructions to deliver the cargo of dried cod to Malaga in southern Spain where a decent price might be fetched. Hoping to make some side profit, Hunt tricked over two dozen local Indians into boarding his ship, whereupon he kidnapped them, clapping them in irons for the long voyage to Malaga, where he hoped to make a killing by selling them as exotic slaves. All of this might seem a strange digression, until we learn that many of these kidnapped Indians were eventually rescued from Iberian slave markets by Spanish Catholic monks. One among these Indians was called Tisquantum, and he would eventually make his way to England, living there for nearly two years before finally managing to catch a ship back to North America, where he found his old village lying empty and desolate, its neat cleared fields now tangled, overgrown and gone to seed. We now know that his community on Cape Cod was likely wiped out by diseases introduced by European fur traders and fishermen, possibly smallpox, or more likely, leptospirosis carried by rats aboard European ships. We can only imagine the desperate fear and loneliness of this Patuxet man as he walked for a day and a half ever farther inland until finally reaching a friendly Poganucket village where he was told of his people's doom. At a meeting with their leader Usamaquin, also known to history as Massasoit, Tisquantum also learned that the disease which had ravaged his own tribe had spread among other Wampanoag. Rivals to the immediate west, the Narragansett, were said to be plotting to take advantage of Wampanoag vulnerability. It was against this background that Tisquantum soon after heard of the arrival of yet another shipload of Europeans near his old home, now a ghost village. As they explored Tisquantum's deserted village after a brutal winter aboard ship, saints and strangers alike must have thought that the holy hand of providence was indeed guiding them. No sign of hostile Indians, and even better, they found a landscape already cleared and prepared for farming. Initial attempts at spring crop sowing failed, however, due to a lack of local knowledge and poor seed and crop choices. 
everyone at Plymouth was now facing into the grim prospect of another winter of starvation. That is, until a day in March when a courteous and well-mannered Abenaki man called Samoset strode confidently into their makeshift settlement with its small improvised fort, and then proceeded to greet them in English before asking for the beer. Samoset, like Tisquantum, had also been on a recent visit to Osamaquim, and the two leaders had discussed how to react to the arrival of the English. A plan was hatched. For their part, the Wampanoag had food and local expertise to offer. In return, perhaps the English could be persuaded to stand in alliance with the Wampanoag against the Narragansett encroachments. Samoset and a few hand-picked men tested the waters on a couple of occasions, visiting the English while bearing trade goods. Samoset returned to Osamaquin with a largely positive report, but proper negotiations would require someone with better interpretation skills. And this is how Tisquantum, later known to history by his nickname Squanto, came to return to the village of his own upbringing. The settlers of Plymouth were not approached by curious and innocent noble savages, enthralled or astonished by the sight of Europeans. Samoset and Squanto were fully as well-traveled as many of the English, and in many ways were probably better educated, while certainly being more self-reliant. And it is thanks to Squanto that a treaty was brokered between Osamaquin and the English. It is also thanks to Squanto that the Plymouth colony learned how to farm in a way suited to local conditions and how to pilot the local coastline for fishing and trading. Neither saint nor stranger tamed any wilderness, and the numerous strangers who did eventually prosper as farmers were those who were willing to adopt indigenous knowledge and indigenous agricultural practices. Squanto would only live another couple of years before dying of fever. Perhaps lucky for him, he did not live to see his diplomacy begin to unravel, as saints and strangers alike quickly learned to bite the hand which had literally fed them. Now that we've learned a little about the merchants, traders, skilled craftspeople and farmers among the strangers of Plymouth Colony, what about the strangers who walked the shadowlands on the edge of society? the ones unwilling or unable to play the game. The ones for whom freedom was just another word for nothing left to lose, to borrow a phrase. In the USA today, the people with the least real freedom in economic terms and in terms of access to real political power and social mobility are often the very people most likely to identify with what this podcast will always call the legend of American liberty. There are powerful reasons behind the mystique and longevity of certain tropes and folklore based in legendary ages of liberty. Think... The Golden Age of Piracy, the frontier, the Wild West. Yet the Golden Age of Piracy lasted only one lifetime. The Wild West of yore lasted half that. The reason we remember 
celebrate and make legends of these times is precisely because for the underclasses, the type of freedom represented by those times is so vanishingly rare and ephemeral. Or, as the fictionalised version of Marcus Aurelius put it when speaking of the early Roman Republic in the Ridley Scott film Gladiator, There was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. There have been times during 400 years of European-American history in which relative personal freedom for the common man or woman was tangible and real, especially when compared to conditions in other parts of the world. But even in the land of liberty, these times were brief and specific to certain periods, events, locations, and to only a few lucky economic, ethnic, or religious groups. Speaking in a very general sense, the period of maximum individual freedom for lower social class white Christian males in America occurred sometime between the end of the Revolutionary War and the end of the Wild West. A window of perhaps 100 years of cheap or free land and almost unbounded natural resources. Freedom was curtailed only by the rudiments of bureaucracy, law and governance. This is, of course, leaving out the obvious lack of freedom which comes with lawlessness, claim jumping, war conscription, range wars and Indian wars, but those are also stories for another day. So on one side of this 100 years of freedom, pre-revolution, people lived within a rigid Anglo-American social class system comprised pretty much of five groups of people. The nobility, the gentry, free men or yeomen, and the working poor and unemployed poor, otherwise known as the underclasses. This is obviously not including unassimilated Native Americans and black slaves. On the other side of this 100 years of freedom, coinciding with the closing of the Wild West, a replacement class system arose. This new social system would be based solely on property, money, and race, with politicians, industrialists and bankers, land, cattle, railroad, coal and oil barons replacing the old nobility, while large farmers, merchants, manufacturers, doctors, military officers, judges, lawyers, these became the equivalent of the old gentry. The former social categories of freemen and the underclasses became less and less differentiated by literacy, farm ownership, trade skills or poverty, and more and more associated with whiteness versus non-whiteness. Unassimilated Indians had been forced onto reservations and slaves had been freed, but both groups remained firmly at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Anyone arriving in Massachusetts in the 1600s who was not already a member of the nobility or landed gentry would not have been free in any sense of the word used by conservative Americans today. We might speak of how our forebears arrived seeking liberty and freedom from religious persecution, but this is simplistic and serves only a nationalistic political narrative which has always tried to draw a straight line from pilgrims to pioneers and on to contemporary Toby Keith-style flag-hugging. 
English dissenters were not proto-libertarians. English dissenters were not proto-patriots trying to invent modern democracy. English dissenters were religious reformers, not social justice warriors. Religious reform and social reform are emphatically not interchangeable terms. Saints, for all their talk of the Christian gospel and its promises to the poor, the humble, and the hungry, remained profoundly interested in prosperity, land, and social status, while largely uninterested in the moral problems of servitude, slavery, or indeed genocide. And once in America, brownists, saints, pilgrims, whatever we choose to call them, for all their talk of freedom, had no intention of extending their own concept of religious freedom to mean universal individual liberty or egalitarianism. Nor did they wish for religious freedom to mean freedom of conscience, or for such freedom of conscience to be extended to their non-saintly neighbors, indentured servants, or slaves. Public and private spheres were tightly circumscribed by literalist interpretations of biblical scripture, with a clear conviction that the devil himself was alive, real, and working constantly to undermine God's great plan. All of this meant that life under the governance of the saints was essentially a life within a religious commune, but bound up within a stifling English class system. This classist obsession with social rank and status is why underclass women in early New England could be whipped at the post for crimes as petty as wearing a silk scarf, an offence obviously found in no Bible. Such crimes were crimes against the very secular class system. All in all, we can see that one person's freedom in America was, of course, another person's prison. In hindsight, though, the Saints of Plymouth can oddly appear as having been relatively tolerant when compared to the Puritan colonists of the Massachusetts Bay Colony who would begin arriving in waves shortly after. This later Puritan community quite willing to subject their co-religionists to harsh law. Non-Puritans would be subject to appalling violence, as the Pequot people and the Quakers would soon discover. But because the saints were in the minority at Plymouth, building a sustainable colony without strangers was simply impossible. This is almost certainly the reason for the saints' willingness to overlook many of the moral lapses at Plymouth. Lapses, it must be said, which occurred among their own people as well as among the strangers. Many would be surprised to learn, for example, that even among saints, usually portrayed as repressed and uptight about sex, around half of all children were born out of wedlock. Although fornication was officially listed as a capital offence, it was rarely treated as such. Whether saint or stranger, Sexual behavior had to cross a very real line to warrant serious punishment, and that line was mostly drawn at blatant adultery, rape, homosexuality, and bestiality. Other moral lapses regularly overlooked included gambling and drinking. It was only when this small community sensed itself in real imminent peril that people were severely punished. Causing imminent peril could include neglect of farmer guard duties, theft, violence, witchcraft, angering nearby Indian tribes, and, as already noted, serious sexual misconduct. 
And boy, oh boy, was there regular lapsing of the standards first imagined for a new Jerusalem. Including among the 41 signatories to the Mayflower Compact, who are usually lumped together today as pious pilgrim fathers. John Billington, stranger, hanged for murder in 1630, the first person to be executed in New England. Edward Doty, stranger, involved in sundry public disturbances, including sword and knife fights with other indentured servants. Stranger George Sewell's son Nathaniel was whipped for lying with an Indian woman. Saint and Mayflower Compact signatory William Brewster can hardly be blamed for the actions of others, but it speaks to the range of characters in Tiny Plymouth that William's son Love Brewster had a stranger servant named Thomas Granger, who was the first juvenile executed in British North America for buggery with a mare, a cow, two goats, diverse sheep, two calves, and a turkey. He was hanged, aged only 16. Among the non-signatories to the Mayflower Compact, we find William Latham, stranger, whose wife Mary was hanged for adultery. That's the official reason, mind. As ever with these things, her story is more complicated upon closer scrutiny. Ships arriving almost on the heels of the Mayflower brought more lively participants to life's rich pageant in Plymouth. There was John Oldham, otherwise known as Mad Jack, an Indian trader and no friend of the saints, who was slain by Indians in 1636. There was John Lifford, the first ordained minister to arrive in Plymouth Colony in 1624, a man who was secretly anti-separatist and caught sending unfavourable reports back to England. But in between letter-writing, he also found time to bed every maid brought into his and his wife's household. There was Edward Messenger, whipped at the post for abusing his servants. There were openly gay men, such as the so-called Five Sodomites, who arrived in Plymouth in 1629, but were sent directly back to England. Other homosexual men were subject to public whippings, branding, and even banishment if considered to be repeat offenders, or caught, quote, spending their seed upon one another, proved by both witness and their own confession. One is left wondering about the voyeur who felt compelled to stick around long enough to witness things to their conclusion. Curiously, in the only recorded case of apparent lesbianism in Plymouth, both parties were led off with relatively light punishments and a warning against such future behaviour. This probably had more to do with the saints' inability to slot such behaviour into biblical prohibitions against sodomy and buggery. But what about the non-separatist members of the underclasses who managed to keep their noses relatively clean? The ones who flew under the radar of documentation? the ones who don't appear in court records? What about the people wedged uncomfortably between the skilled craftspeople and slaves, the group of people once called commoners? What future in America was available to only moderately skilled workers like spinners, basket weavers, shoemakers or rope makers, common day laborers, field laborers, washerwomen and stock herders, charcoal burners, tanners, woodcutters? What about the people even lower down, 
the often unskilled people brought as general servants for both saints and strangers, people who actually sold a portion of their life's labour to a master for a fixed period or term. Many, many had signed these lengthy indentures in return for little more than the actual cost of their sea voyage to Massachusetts. Others, the ones usually from a somewhat better background, relatively speaking, could negotiate terms including some sort of vocational training or education with the promise of a right to take the freeman's oath at the end of a typical five to seven year term of service with tools, clothing, and even, if they were lucky, a small plot of land sometimes included as a sort of freeman's startup kit. Before then, the master was expected to provide decent shelter, food and clothing. In practice, though, this side of the bargain was often ignored, with some servants being treated little better than slaves, especially those servants who came from desperately poor, rough or completely uneducated backgrounds. The lowest of the low among such indentured servants were non-ranking prisoners of war, vagrants, paupers, beggars and gypsies, along with convicts and criminals and various young people and children sentenced to transportation for crimes as petty as stealing bread. Needless to say, these men, women and children were rarely able to negotiate favourable terms of service. Children in particular didn't even need to commit an offence to end up aboard a ship to the English colonies in Barbados, Virginia or New England. A substantial and lucrative trade in the children of the impoverished, in homeless children and in orphans from England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland became widespread, with youngsters being sourced from poorhouses or kidnapped straight off the streets to be sold into indentured servitude. This trade was not random. It was not opportunistic or just occasional. The Venetian ambassador to London during the 1650s reported seeing 1,200 people being rounded up by force and held for shipment to Barbados, an island which was not only a final destination, but a major redistribution hub for prisoners of war, indentured servants and slaves. This is in fact the original source of the word kidnapping, as in nabbing or stealing children. But despite all this, becoming a freeman was almost the only shot at social mobility for these underclass strangers ducking and weaving among the Plymouth Saints. Unless it had formed an explicit part of their indenture contract, however, becoming a so-called freeman in Plymouth was not completely straightforward. First, a person had to be clear of all debt and able to support themselves. Second, a person had to receive formal approval by vote in the general court. This approval was unlikely for anyone who appeared to disagree in any way with the religious basis of the colony, or anyone who had made enemies while a commoner or servant, or indeed anyone of dubious moral character according to the authorities. Third, a person was still required to take an oath pledging loyalty and subjection to the company, its governors and proprietors, which makes something of a mockery of the word free. But there you go. Oaths of loyalty notwithstanding, for many, 
Freeman status would still be the magic key unlocking the door to respectability and at least some basic citizens' rights. The right to vote on local issues, and most important of all, the right to own land. Land ownership became even more important later, after the Saints' buyout of the London Merchant Adventures' interests in Plymouth. Is it any wonder, though, that in the face of such travails, abuse, hyper-religiosity and material obstacles placed in their way, many commoners simply chose to live in the hinterlands, and many servants simply ran away. Other servants, once they had completed their term of service, chose to opt out of the social contract altogether, going to sea, going into the backwoods, going outlaw, or going native. All the foregoing aside... It remains, of course, that the lowest social position of all was always occupied by slaves. With the first African slaves arriving in Massachusetts a mere three years after the so-called First Thanksgiving. First in Boston in 1624, with slaves being transferred from Virginia and the Caribbean. By 1634, the first direct importation of slaves from Africa began. By 1638, the slave ship Desire was delivering Barbadian slaves to Boston as payment for indigenous American prisoners of war. This latter represents perhaps the greatest silence of all in traditional American history, the silence surrounding the enslavement of Native American Indians. In the barbarous years of the 1600s, underclass strangers, Africans, and Native Americans had almost nothing, and yet almost everything, in common. Part 3. Strangers for Dinner On an unknown day in the autumn of 1621, a short time after their first successful crop harvest, some members of the community at Plymouth thought it would be an appropriate time to pause, take a few days off, and celebrate the fact that, finally, their very survival seemed in some way more likely. We know about this harvest feast because the second man elected governor of this tiny settlement, separatist William Bradford, wrote about it. The first governor, John Carver, had dropped dead in a field his first year in Plymouth. Bradford's isn't the only contemporary written source describing events in earliest colonial Massachusetts. There are other accounts, including those penned by Thomas Morton of Marymount, yes, he of the Utopian Commune, but Mort's Relation and a book called Of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford would become the go-to sources for later Birth of America stories. 
American Genesis stories with an anti-British slant became very much in demand following American independence from British rule about 160 years after the founding of Plymouth. But even then, the Thanksgiving story, as per Bradford, remained largely forgotten. Even allowing for Bradford's obvious pro-saint spin on events, he describes an event completely different to the Thanksgiving story propagated by later post-Civil War mythmakers. William Bradford even offers us a guest list for the 1621 festivities. Perhaps surprisingly, strangers actually outnumbered saints at this harvest celebration. Even more surprising is the fact that Wampanoag people far outnumbered both saints and strangers. In fact, if we could transport ourselves back to this proto-Thanksgiving, we would find around 25 pilgrims, outnumbered about 5 to 1 by around 27 strangers and over 90 Wampanoag. With such first-hand sources available, why does a much later and semi-accurate story of black-clad, bebuckled and devout pilgrims hosting a few Indian guests endure as the abiding iconography of Thanksgiving? In the first instance, we should remember that of all the colonists in Wampanoag living in and around Plymouth in the 1620s, it is the saints who were a people driven by religious fervor and ideology, with an almost grandiose sense of their mission, a burning belief that they had been specially chosen as instruments of God. People who feel special in such a way, and are literate, are the people most likely to write down, tend, and amend their foundational stories. Illiterate indentured servants, backwoodsmen, Indians and slaves, do not write hagiographies. Secondly, the saints' story of themselves is the type of story most people wanted in the decades following American independence, and it was certainly the type of story needed after the horrors and disunity of the later Civil War. Humble, devout Protestant people escaping from a life under a corrupt aristocracy and monarchy in order to establish a shining city on a hill. These were the type of ancestors a lot of Americans preferred to imagine. Pilgrims were the people war-weary and shell-shocked Americans wanted to see when they looked in the mirror. While the saints found Thomas Morton's explicit encouragement of English Wampanoag intermarriage abhorrent and his desire to interweave indigenous and rural English cultural traditions downright heretical, saintly prejudice in this instance appears to have had less to do with any form of color-based racism and far more to do with the fact that the Wampanoag and other tribes were not English and they were not Christians, never mind extremist Christians. And their so-called pagan morality ran counter to a do-it-yourself Protestant belief system based in biblical literalism and a fervent faith in the predestination of souls. Put more simply, unevangelized Indians lived outside the grace of the Protestant God, and anyone or anything living outside God's grace was likely to be connected in some way to the devil. And this is why God's chosen people we're happy to see Thomas Morton's social experiment crushed by Miles Standish, their gun for hire. Getting rid of a major business rival was just the icing on the cake. God and mammon, indeed. Americans of the immediately post-revolution generation were an utterly different people to the saints and strangers of Plymouth. 
as surely as we today are not the same people as those who fought during the Civil War. Americans in 1785, especially rural and backcountry Americans, had seen over 160 years of immigration from places other than England. Rural America had grown distant from its earlier English roots and was steeped in religious revivalism and anti-English rhetoric. And unlike those at Plymouth, Americans had become utterly immersed in racialist ways of thinking. The majority of Americans in 1785 who despised and belittled Africans and indigenous nations had new reasons for their bigotry, reasons having little to do with religion and everything to do with the self-serving ideologies of manifest destiny and race-based slavery. In the aftermath of its wars with the French and their Indian allies in America during the 1750s, the British establishment, for all its faults, had at least held out the promise of leaving indigenous nations west of the Appalachian Mountains undisturbed following the Anglo Peace Treaty with the French and the subsequent British Proclamation of 1763 forbidding British subjects from entering or settling indigenous lands to the west. Land-hungry speculators like George Washington were not impressed. Lower-class American squatters of Indian lands were even less impressed. With this in mind, we should remember that during the American rebellion against the British only a few short years after the 1763 proclamation, a rebellion gleefully supported by France and Spain, the rights of savages would never form part of the American revolutionary project. In fact, the promise of free indigenous land post-revolution was actually offered as an inducement to help fill so-called patriot military rosters. For their own political reasons, and mostly for their very survival, many Indian tribes and nations of course sided with the English. Post-revolution, tribes would continue to fight local guerrilla-style wars in a constant but ultimately doomed effort to stem the tidal wave of Americans washing over their homelands, now free of British control. Four score and seven years after the revolution, to borrow a turn of phrase, and at a turning point in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln decided to draw upon William Bradford's writings about the Pilgrims, as the inspiration for a holiday which might serve to reunite Americans. Of course, by the time of Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg, almost all Eastern Indian tribes had already been broken by decades of warfare, slave raiding, disease, European encroachment, and forced removal from their homelands. Land-hungry Americans during the 1800s were never going to draw upon the writings of Thomas Morton as the historical basis for a birth of the USA story. Connections to English nobility. Outright hostility to religious zealots and their New Jerusalem project. Advocacy for the rights of indentured servants and so-called pagan savages. But oddly enough, it's Thomas Morton's vision which never died. Bear with me and I'll explain. Upon his return to England, Thomas Morton was an angry man. 
He wrote letters. He wrote some more letters. He lobbied powerful friends and told anyone who would listen that allowing a theocracy to develop in England's American colonies was a dangerous mistake. And in the end, Thomas Morton enjoyed a victory of sorts. In 1635, King Charles and the Council for New England restructured the governance system of the Plymouth Colony, which you might recall had been operating on the basis of a dubious Virginia Charter anyway. Plymouth's citizens would be deeply in debt for years, and the town would shortly thereafter close all its trading houses and begin a slow decline into economic irrelevance when compared to newer settlements in Boston and Connecticut. Four episodes into this podcast journey, listeners might be rightly thinking, okay, some of this is new to me, and certainly interesting, but what does all of this have to do with ethnic history? All these saints and strangers alike seem to have been pretty much white English people. And after all, don't we have the passenger manifests with the names of thousands of white Puritans who followed in the wake of the Mayflower from England to Massachusetts? Isn't this podcast called Before We Were White, after all? Here's the deal. When we look only at pilgrims and Puritans and ignore the strangers, especially the underclass strangers, we are choosing to ignore vast swathes of the people who actually created America. Remember, we only have the names of those first settlers at Plymouth and thousands of later English Puritans because they were the ones caught by documentation. Many were literate, and even when non-literate, they were the people willing to swear an oath of fidelity to company and crown, signed by signature or mark. Now think of the modern population of the American Southwest, and think of the numbers of official citizens versus the undocumented, and then look back at early colonial America. A continent with no border patrols, no coast guard, no immigration officers, no border walls. And then remember the hundreds of ships off the coast of North America for decades before any pilgrim set foot there. For every legitimate ship sailing to the New World during the 1600s with a hold full of Puritans, there was another ship, before and after full of often unnamed and undocumented sailors, fishermen, captives of war, vagrants, English and Iberian Jews, convicts, the impoverished, the illiterate, orphans, gypsies, prostitutes, and criminals. With almost no money and poor prospects, these are the people who would most often co-mingle with and seek partners, wives, husbands, and lovers among the African and indigenous peoples, both free and unfree. From such couplings, whether born of love, lust, or violence, from every single casual liaison, from every fur trader's tryst among indigenous tribes and nations, from every meeting of men and prostitutes, came the inevitable mixed ethnic children. Add to this the children born from the sexual exploitation of the disempowered by the powerful, the children born from the taking of sexual liberties and even the outright rape of indentured servants, Indian slaves, and African slaves. There is a reason that early American records and documents are filled with words and terms describing people as octoroon, 
mulatto, all other free, free persons of color, and half-breed. These are the people who will be characterized again and again as old mix Americans as this podcast moves forward. If official American history is visualized as an iron-shod wagon wheel rolling down through the generations, then old mix Americans are the sparks off that wheel as it meets the road. Some sparks fade and die while others catch fire in the long grass. Early inter-ethnic co-mingling of all the above-named groups is a huge part of the foundational stock of old mix America, the multi-ethnic underclasses who would strive for decades and centuries to pass as white. The sceptical should ask themselves, where did the children of Thomas Morton's workers and their Wampanoag partners go? Is it merely chance that Richard Warren, the stranger with perhaps more living descendants than any other, carries a male DNA haplotype quite rare among the English? Or was he possibly drawn from the Sephardic Jewish community who were keeping their heads down around Hertfordshire, just north of London during the late 1500s? There are equally legitimate grounds for asking whether Mayflower Compact signatory George Sewell was also of Jewish ancestry. If a son of this same George Sewell is on record as receiving a public whipping for sleeping with an indigenous woman, are we to suppose that this was an isolated incident? Of course not. He was just one man who happened to be caught. Other hints run like an underground river through later 17th century Puritan court records, and such records can offer only a tiny glimpse of what was going on in hay sheds, under hedgerows, and behind closed doors. Where are the offspring and descendants of lovers such as Mary Mandam and Tinson, a woman punished in 1639 for taking an Indian to her bed? Where are the descendants of Hannah Bonney, daughter of Thomas Bonney, punished for bearing a child by a man who the courts called the Negro Nimrod? Did any children come of William Makepeace's, quote, lascivious attempts toward an Indian woman, unquote. The simple truth is that from the moment the very first child of mixed ethnicity was born in Plymouth Colony and its environs, a substantial class of mixed ethnic people began a journey down through the decades and centuries of American history, multiplying just as surely as any others who claim ancestry from a Mayflower passenger. If one in 100 Americans can claim descent from just 100 Mayflower passengers, how many Americans descend from these other sparks off the wheel of so-called respectable society? The answer, thanks to the digitization of historical records and modern DNA testing, is now obvious. And that answer is a lot. But why should it be important that we understand the multi-ethnic background of American families, both humble and famous? The families of people like Laura Ingalls Wilder, Johnny Cash, or Jackie Onassis. Because it puts meat on the bones of ideas often expressed, but rarely understood. When scientists and sociologists say race is a social construct... Most people simply shrug and say, I know a white person or a black person when I see one. 
But perceptions without understanding are meaningless. We might as well believe that painting our car red turns it into a fire engine. Thanksgiving continues to be held up as an all-American holiday, even though the script insists on casting white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in all the leading roles, with only a few walk-on parts for brown or black extras to add atmosphere. If Thanksgiving is meant to celebrate the birth of America and American values, it is meaningless if we ignore the vast majority of the people who attended the first Thanksgiving. This is not to say that the Pilgrim Fathers and the Puritans after them didn't leave a clear imprint on the character of later American society. They did. But not all of this legacy is an unqualified good, nor was it ever reflective of the majority of Americans, then or now. Whatever about how they saw themselves, whatever about the symbolic weight placed upon them by later generations, the saints and the Puritans who followed them were not typical for their time. They were the outliers. Nor were they the only good guys or some pure wellspring of true American culture. In many cases, they in fact made very convincing bad guys, as our next couple of episodes on the Pequot Massacre of 1636 and the Salem Witch Trials of 1692 will show. Neither should we imagine the strangers of this podcast as some sort of unsung heroes who should now supplant the saints for the sake of crude historical revisionism, as if the strangers should all be worthy of a place on a pedestal. From their actions, it seems clear that the biggest difference between saints and strangers is that for strangers, life in the new world was less a faith-willed conjuring of some new reality and more about navigating a storm of luck, circumstance, personal agency, and something closer to objective reality. Make no mistake, most strangers, being products of their time, did of course profess a faith in a god. But the saint's concept of predestiny and Jerusalem on earth was simply too abstract and airy-fairy for many of the people outside the saint's in-group. Strangers come across as people concerned with the simple immediacy of survival. It only seems fair that if the social legacy of the strangers in America is very different to that of the saints, then it is equally worthy of remembrance. And these completely different groups, with their differing motivations, should cease being lumped together in schoolbooks as the Pilgrim Fathers. It is in the complex interplay and conflicts between saints and strangers, Indians and slaves, that distinctly American identities began to form. In some respects, the COVID-ravaged America which celebrated Thanksgiving in 2021, only months after a January insurrection, is fighting the same culture wars begun over 400 years ago. Wars between ideologues and pragmatists. Wars between ruling classes and underclasses. Colonizers and colonized. The haves and have-nots. The religious and secular-minded. The bigoted versus the liberal-minded. One thing which is undoubtedly shared by everyone involved in these now ancient and tiresome culture wars is that 
all people in America became at some stage embroiled in the ethno-wars arising from the original American twin sins of Indian genocide and race-based chattel slavery. The ground underfoot has shifted in many ways over the centuries, and threads which were once separate have become deeply entangled over time. Just as late medieval European Lollards and Hussites were the midwives to European Lutherans and Calvinists, Lutherans and Calvinists would go on to furnish the genetic material for European Presbyterians, Puritans and Dissenters. The English Civil War of the mid-1600s saw an acceleration in the transportation of religious fundamentalism to a new continent. It is not remotely unfair to characterize Puritanism as the Protestant Christian equivalent of Sharia law. An endless recycling of interpretation and adjustment of religious dogma and spiritual desire, fact and imagination is how Puritans and dissenters eventually begat Quakerism, Methodism and the American Baptist churches. In America, the dance between the children of saints and strangers among the smoking ruins of Manifest Destiny would go on to bear strange fruit. Baptists and Methodists would lead revivalism, and revivalism would eventually spawn side growths such as the snake-handling holiness movement, Mormons, Billy Graham, tele-evangelism, and prosperity theology. It is hard indeed to picture Martin Luther or William Bradford attending any of these modern American Pentecostalist churches and feeling at home. It is equally hard to imagine what the strangers in Wampanoag sharing roast venison washed down with beer and strong water in 1621 would make of a modern Thanksgiving. This is what time does to culture, memory, folklore and truth much like a child's game of pass the message or Chinese whispers. But if we look beyond the eulogies for pilgrim fathers, it is really the strangers, and especially the underclass sparks off these strangers, who would eventually embody the very worst and the very best of America. The worst because it was often these sparks, in their desperation to escape their lowly status and to pass as white, who often became the most vocal cheerleaders for land-grabbing, racism, patriarchy, whacked-out religion, nationalistic jingoism, violence, lynch law and militarism without end. Yet it would also be from these common people, especially the multi-ethnic splinters and sparks, that the foundation of an optimistic, adventurous, creative, dynamic and progressive melting pot America was laid. This time, of all times, is for reminding Americans that the famous melting pot is not something bubbling away on a fire in somebody else's house. There are no separate vessels marked black melting pot and white melting pot. The American melting pot is a thing inside ourselves, written in our shared DNA. It's to be hoped that this podcast episode has helped to show that Thanksgiving and the birth of America are stories far bigger and far more complex than a sanitized story of our pilgrim fathers. At the very minimum, let's hope that just this much is clear. When it comes to history, the things we remember and the things we forget are rarely as random as a child's game.
the same people who try today to portray American history in terms of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant exceptionalism and narrow definitions of patriotism are the inheritors of the saints' attempts and later writers' and politicians' attempts to construe one tiny niche history as the official history of everyone. Or even worse, they attempt to construe it as the only history that will be tolerated. Maybe the best way of learning other histories and respecting other truths is to have dinner with strangers now and again. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank some of those who have made this new episode possible, especially those who have kept the faith during the turbulence of the past two years. So Leanne, Kathleen, Michael, and Kathy, a very sincere and personal thank you. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by me, Brian Halpin. Theme music by Ray Cohen and Dave McLaughlin, with additional music by McTira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider helping to keep the show on the road by subscribing to our Patreon page or supporting us while visiting beforewewerewhite.com. Thank you.